I've been waiting for so long oh to play God. that. That is, uh, of course, the Colonel Bogey March from a certain movie that we will be talking about momentarily. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, so Simpsons... that, that that is so martial. So, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. the, uh, it, and the lyrics, uh, you know, which there are lyrics, are even funnier. Um, you can look them up, look them up online. The uh, they they reference the Nazi leadership's um, virility. Let's just <laughs> leave it at that. Uh, so uh, you know the the since we t- since Halloween, and in the less than three weeks now since the Harvey Weinstein thing broke, um, James Toback and I mean oh, a whole wow. bunch of other stu- other people. You know, two hundred plus women with yeah. James Toback. Which you know, I mean, first, well, first, it, that was an opening bid of thirty-eight women. It's yeah. like it's like it it it, it opened at thirty-eight yeah. women with him. Yeah, uh, James Toback, whom I've interviewed several times. I yeah, think, whom you Bugsy you, Junket, you know, man. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, and, and 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 all of that. And I don't know. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, again say. Well, sure, I knew about all of that. So I don't. I don't well, think that that was the kind of open secret that Harvey was. Yeah, no, not the same as Harvey. I mean, it's it. You know the. To- Toback stuff kind of came out of the blue. Everybody knew that Toback fancied himself a woman, a womanizer in his younger days because his first film was The Pickup Artist, which yeah. was autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. So, you know, we he was already bragging about his yeah. his proclivities with that movie. But I don't think anybody... Like, did you read the, uh, the thing that just broke most recently with um, Selma Blair and Rachel McAdams, yeah. who both had... I mean, the Selma Blair, well, both of them, they both are like, wow, really? Seriously? You know, yeah. like Selma Blair, he said, I don't think you, uh, or he allegedly, let's keep it there, he allegedly said, uh, you know, I, I think you're, I don't think you're, uh, you need to get over your insecurities. You need to do this audition uh, without your clothes on. Like, yeah. Are, I mean, come on, man. If that's, when, if that's true, uh, I, those well, days I, are I, over. I, 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 I believe it. And, but I do think a lot of these guys are, in fact, Stuck in the past. Yeah, those those days are in fact over. Have been over for a long time. So a lot of these guys that we're looking at now, these are fairly old guys, older than me and you. Oh, oh yeah, you oh know? yeah. Uh, and you know, when we first hit this town, uh, you know, almost thirty years ago, and, and and you and Bridget got into the acting games. These guys were around, behaving this way then, yeah. uh, and well before. Sometimes yeah. as much as a decade before. Yeah, uh, and it's like they didn't get the memo. You know? I know, um, and which is interesting to me that you know, I, and, and look, I'm sure that some younger men mostly will probably, ultimately, but mostly we're talking about men of a certain age, and yeah. I got to tell you, I'm glad that that age is just a notch older than me. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's and and the entire European Parliament. Let let's not forget about them. Yeah, because <laughs> it actually has spread overseas and, and into other fields of endeavor. Um, it's just a mess that won't that won't stop. Yes, indeed. And uh, you know, we 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 had a bunch of uh, emails about the uh, about the Harvey thing too, which um, we will obviously consolidate and and discuss on a, on a future show i think this this thing is is it's all far far from over well um, we're going into award seasons which yeah. means that some very specific considerations are going to have to start coming up yeah uh, about people and people's movies and producers and uh and and who's associated with the what and yeah. and uh, and whether or not people should be rewarded and whether or not other people should be, be punished 
because of something that someone who works True. on a movie did. They look at, you know, why am I punishing Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. Um, you know, because Harvey has a movie coming out with Benedict. And I don't know, maybe that movie sucks. It doesn't really, and, and even that, I, I, I haven't seen that movie yet. Yeah. Um, but I know that when I go to see that movie, you know, as objective as a human being as I am, I'm going to be thinking to myself, hmm. Yeah. Harvey. <laughs> Benedict. It's, Harvey. Harvey. And, you know, and it's already not fair. It's not. It's tough. Uh, yeah. I, I just, anyway, it is going to be an interesting award season. And uh, we've, the thing I'm most curious about is how, how things are going to change over the next few years. Amazon's a player now. Netflix wants to be a player. Um, $8 billion. It's going to change everything. What are the Oscars going to look like in five years? I think uh, it could be a whole different thing. And this year's the beginning of the end of that. So, Well, look, you and I were just talking about this right before we began the, the show today, right? Um, so uh, you, we're movie people. Yep. You know, theatrical movie people. That's what we like. It's what we do. But then again, on the other hand, you and I, are, you know, we're, we're television people. Yeah. You, and I, you and I are the actual original children of television. Yeah. And I think both of us can, can admit that a good deal of what we're watching today that's very, very, very good is stuff that's either literally uh, on television mm -hmm. or coming from some streaming service. Uh, and frankly, a, a lot of younger people that I know, that's where they get all their media. I'm teaching mm -hmm. a class right now. Uh, the university where you yep, used to teach. Yep, yep. Mount uh, St. Mary's. St. Mary's. Uh, yeah. Mount St. Mary's University. And, uh, and, and these, young, these young women, these young women um, engage media completely and totally differently. My youngest student is 17 years old. Uh, I think my oldest student is maybe 25 years old. And they, they simply aren't engaging media the way you and I did. And I don't, I don't see them uh, trumbling off to the movie every week the way you the and way I that did. we did i know yeah, you know it's all changed the behavior they don't go to restaurants as much no you know uh yeah it's a whole different behavior it's all switching up and it'll someday switch back again i i've been i'm on the record as saying i think movie palaces will come back someday and they will uh, everything else has yeah you know. i, I there the day will come when you have a generation that realizes that people used to you know dress up and go and see big event movies in great big you know uh, Rococo palaces that you know had all kinds of weird Art Deco furnishings, and you know you had a lounge and you could sit. And they're going to think, wait a minute, you know I go to the theater and it uh, it kind of sucks. It's sort of generic. I want a movie palace again. And some smart person will say, here it is. Yeah, it's your palace. And and, and 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 the content will have to be suitable. Yeah, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean you know action film with yeah. superheroes. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, the content might be like the kind you're holding. You're holding. Uh, We're, we'll, we'll get to this in just a moment, and this will, yeah, this will be the. Uh, <laughs> the that's the kind of movie that folks would have dressed up to go see. Exactly, exactly, and of course the uh, the intro from the uh, from the show speaks to it. So, Bridge on the River Kwai, the uh, 1957 Academy Award winner. For Best Picture, won seven of its eight Academy Award uh, nominations. The only one, a little bit of trivia, do you know which one of its uh, eight nominations it did not win? No. Best Supporting Actor for mm -hmm. Sisue Hayakawa. Ah. Who was a student of my father's. Yeah, yeah. When he was, because, and it's funny, my father, of course, in an, an earlier life, long before I was born, uh, taught people who had been in the silence how to speak for the talkies. He did all of that stuff from us singing in the rain, you know, I can't stand him, all that stuff. I can't stand him. 
So, and uh, Sesame Hayakawa had been a huge silent film star. People don't realize that. You think, you know, uh, racism and, you know, sort of the 1920s and, you know, how, especially how people felt about Asians in America, you know, that it was, that they're the other and there weren't large Asian populations here and, you know, then the war comes around. I mean, you know, there, there's, there was a lot of validity to that. However, Sesway Hayakawa was, not, you know, Charlie Chan, right? Never played, yeah, never yeah. played by a, an Asian actor, but no. Sesway Hayakawa... He was something of an exception. He was re a real matinee idol. I mean, he was a he was a big deal in the 1920s. And then when talkies came around, uh oh, mm. you know, it's the it's the thing from the artist, right? You yeah. know, which which you find out <laughs> yeah. the end, the with that accent, and you you know you can't speak English. Okay, suddenly now you're expected to talk. So he was uh, my father. He was when he was still a very young man. My, he was a student of my father's. So I still have a signed picture. Oh, you know, when wow. he's very slender face, but. Um, he, of course, did uh, many other fine films, got a little bit typecast and stereotyped for obvious reasons. But boy, I'll tell you, Bridge in the River Kwai, he just kills it. He's, he's fantastic. He holds his own with Alec Guinness in a beautiful way and got an Oscar nomination for it. But he was the only one to not get an Oscar yeah. award. Extraordinary. Jack Hawkins, David Lean, of course. Yeah. Uh, and so what is, so what, what is this so particular edition? The Kwai yeah. is now out on 4K. Now, this is a big deal. This is a really, really big deal because... A lot of studios, and, and Sony and Universal, uh, chief among them, they're still not apparently convinced that 4K is, is going to be a mainstream format. The, the, the uh, feeling is that not a lot of people are jumping up to 4K Blu-ray. They're getting their 4K TVs, but mainly for sports and gaming and other things, and that the whole idea of getting you know a 4K Blu-ray player... It's not being adopted as robustly as was, say, DVD after VHS or even Blu-ray to a somewhat lesser degree after, after DVD. So, and, the, and really, the reason is pretty obvious, which is there's a huge installed base of, of high-def televisions and of Blu-ray players, which give you really, really good quality. And unless you're above you know, 50 inches, you're probably not going to see a lot of a significant leap from from regular Blu-ray to, uh, to to 4K. Um, however, it is worth pointing out that some movies transcend that, and uh, Bridge in the River Kwai is one of them. The reason this is such a big deal is because most of the movies being released on 4K these days are sort of newish movies, and the people are not really dipping into their libraries as yet, and they're especially not going after old Oscar winners, which they should be. Mm. When Lawrence of Arabia and Ben-Hur and The Sound of Music start making their 4K debuts, then you know we're through the looking glass and, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole new game. However, uh, the first ever Academy Award winning Best Picture to be released on 4K just a few weeks ago was Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood film. Bridge in the River Kwai is the second. Mm. Very interesting. So... That's where we are now. Perhaps a bit of a commitment after all. Yeah. So uh, I do applaud Sony for, for putting this out there. It is, it is thin. Now, this is the other thing. It is thin on the extras, as is the case with, Blue, with uh, 4K uh, Ultra HD releases. The, the, the disc itself is pretty well slammed just putting the movie on. So you're always going to get that second disc which has all the extras. And here you have a second disc that contains a Blu-ray version of the movie along with some extras. Uh, Crossing the Bridge, which is a picture and, picture and graphics track, is on disc two. Uh, William Holden and Alec Guinness uh, make an appearance on the Steve Allen show to oh, promote yeah. it. And uh, there's an archival audio recording of William Holden narrating the movie at its premiere. 
And um, all of that is fine and well. The, the, the first disc, the 4K disc, is the movie only. The thing, the big question a lot of people have, and, and I will say this, uh, uh, it is, it's a really, really good 4K transfer. It's a really good 4K transfer. Uh, my impression of comparing it with the Blu-ray is that the, um, it's the same 4K transfer. So they mastered it in 4K uh. for the original Blu-ray and then just pulled out that master and, and slapped it on here without any, not obviously needing less compression. Right. So there's not a lot of skin off of uh, Sony's back to actually do this. But you it's, see all, all the same artifacts. Surveyed. It's Yeah, I mean, it, and there's no artifacting per se. I mean, it's, it's, it's 4K just looks gorgeous. The, but the, the, the color is the same. The timing is the same. Uh, the timing's a little bit off in some places. Mm. And that's the thing that's a little bit annoying. The film has a lot of day for night. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a lot, a lot of day for night stuff when he's being, you know, when Guinness is being marched off to the hot box, that's day for night. And the day for night stuff isn't quite timed right, wasn't done the first time. Hopefully at some point in the future they'll, they'll you know, kick in the cash and, and go through. And you don't need to remaster the thing. You just need to color correct it and you're, you're good. So uh, hopefully that gets fixed. It's not enough to annoy anybody unless you're a complete anal retentive lunatic like I am and you've seen this movie a thousand times. But uh, it's, it's still there. So it seems to be the same transfer. And um, uh, the HDR looks gorgeous. Everything about it is fantastic. I would highly recommend this as a double dip. However, however, the previous uh, Bridge of the River Kwai, the Blu-ray, was one of those gorgeous Warner Brothers Blu-ray books. Mm. With the color and the pictures and the booklet and the content, it just, it's, there's more stuff. It's just, it's a more collectible thing. So uh, don't get rid of the Blu-ray. Hang on to that Blu-ray. Yeah, because you got all that, even though you got a Blu-ray on this too. Yeah, yeah. but you know. Uh, but hang on to that, because it's a nice collector set, and you're going to want to thumb through those I love that. Pages. I love that graphic design too. Yeah, it's nice. It's a, it's a cool yeah. new graphic design on the cover. It, uh, it's, it's cool. It's kind of the, uh, it's a little bit of the uh, Richard. Like, almost like a rotoscopy sort of. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit like, uh, like the Waking Life yeah. book. Yeah. So anyway, Bridge in the River Kwai, 60th anniversary release. Uh, is seven-time Academy Award winner, the first film that uh, David Lean won an Oscar for. He would go on to uh, win another one with Lawrence of Arabia just five years later. And uh, this is this is from the great heyday. Important to note, too, this was uh, written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson. Michael Wilson, a blacklisted writer who received his credit uh, posthumously. Uh, he also received a posthumous credit for Lawrence of Arabia, which I don't believe he deserves. But nonetheless... Uh, interestingly, this adapted from a novel by Pierre Boulle, who wrote uh, uh, Planet of the Birds, Apes, Planet of the Apes that yeah. source material, and uh, a lot of other fun stories about this movie. Uh, they were both blacklisted, right? Both Foreman and uh, yeah. and Wilson, okay. yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, though, Wilson uh, was his name was kept off for many many years. <laughs> so yeah, there it is. Interesting. Uh, what do I got? I got uh, I got Kenji Fuka Fukasaku's uh, The Green Slime from the Warner uh, Archive Collection. Yeah. You know what I like most about this movie? Huh. Uh, aside from the fact that it has a giant one-eyed green slime monster yeah. in it, which is great. <laughs> uh, is that Richard Jekyll is in it? I love Richard Jekyll. He's oh, one of those seventies television guys. One of the seventies guys with the who always played bad guys. Yeah, you know, yeah. with the hair. I mean, yeah. eventually, you know, he, was, you know, yeah. he was always fantastic. Loved him. This is nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, it's uh, it, it's about an asteroid that's hurtling toward Earth, and these um, astronauts who are on a space station go off over to the asteroid to blow it up. Uh, man, they, they read that story uh, like 50 times, at least, uh, over the course of the next, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. Uh, but it's always a neat story. In any case, they get back to the space station, they figure out that this 
slimy thing. The slimy thing has an eye and it goes all crazy. It's kind of neat. Uh, Invaders from Mars. The, 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 the film is The Green Slime, 1968. Uh, Kinji. There's absolutely nothing on this. Then uh, they, Warner, they, Warner. I guess they don't do that, huh? They this, do sometimes. There's this, a few on some of these others. This was rated G back in the day. Isn't that funny? Which I think is sort of interesting, too. Yeah. Also from the Warner Archive collection, uh, a couple of cool ones here. Jack London's The Sea Wolf, uh, the Jack London novel. The Sea Wolf was, I mean, back in the day when Jack London was a huge thing. Uh, this is from the uh, from 1941. Was made as a movie with Edward G. Robinson and Ida Lupino and John Garfield. Uh, it's a pretty good film. Uh, Michael Curtiz directed this. Uh, you know, he was he's right in the right in his Casablanca era. And um, it, you know, I I'm not a huge fan of Jack London's novels to begin with. They just all kind of strike yeah. me as. Well, he's like sort of the North American Rudyard Kipling. Yeah, yeah, you know with, the, I mean? with the dogs and the wolves. It just, and the... It's very, it's just, uh, you know, it's all adventure and not much else. However... Um, he uses the word wolf a lot, too. Edward, Edward G. Robinson is is very good in this. It's not a typical part for him, you know, playing a crusty old sea captain, but um, he's good. Ida Lupino, I just always adore, even if she's miscast like she is here. So... Uh, Anyway, this is a restored length of this. Uh, the film has not been seen in its original length for quite some time. They restored it to its proper running time, as opposed to the truncated running time that it had for a long time. So it's now 100 minutes as opposed to 86, and uh, completely beautifully, beautifully restored from uh, original nitrate elements. It is a gorgeous Warner Archive transfer. So uh, again, I'm not a huge, huge fan of the movie, but I, I, do like the, uh, I do like this particular transfer of it. Also, I am a big fan of Brigadoon. Oh, yes. Love Brigadoon. Uh, early Learner and Low film with uh, Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly and Van Johnson tagging along, looking very much like a third wheel. Uh, produced by Arthur Freed, who exposed himself to uh, uh, a 12-year-old a Shirley Temple. You know that that story's been yeah. circulating a lot more lately with oh, Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah, now we... That's the famous story, is that, Arthur, is that Shirley Temple and her mom went from meeting on, uh, on the MGM lot. Shirley Temple was, I guess, 12 years older than... Uh, was she even 12? She was maybe not, like, 11, I think. And uh, not that it matters. You know. <laughs> uh, and um, Arthur Freed took her into one room while her mom went into Louis B. Mayer's office. And while Arthur Freed exposed himself to Shirley Temple, who proceeded to laugh at him, Louis B. Mayer was chasing her mom around the desk. Hollywood. True stuff. <laughs> It's like, you know, wow, man. Anyway, uh, so Arthur Freed produced this, Vincent Minnelli directed, and it is a wonderful, wonderful film about a couple of guys that happen across that Scottish village that comes alive once a century or whatever it is, and uh, for just one day, just yeah. one day. And then he gets a one-day romance with Sid Charisse, and they do a lot of great dancing, and people do that little sword dance. And uh, if you don't know the movie or how wonderful it is, how truly wonderful it is, and how brilliantly colorful it is, and its fantastic cinema scope that the Warner Archive people have beautifully preserved, uh, then at least watch Four Weddings and a Funeral, yeah. in in which uh, what's his name has that great line, Simon 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 Callow. Yeah, yeah. When he when he says when he says uh, 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 it's it's Brigadoon when everyone's <laughs> dancing at the wedding. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, Simon Callow. Uh, so anyway, yes, uh, Brigadoon on the Warner Archive collection, also fantastic. Oh, wow. There's a wonderful episode of Lucy that uses the B Brigadoon theme as a backdrop. Oh, yeah. The dragon and everything, whatever, silly. Uh, Waiting for Guffman. Believe it or not, Waiting for Guffman was 1996. That makes me a little bit dizzy. Hmm. Uh, came out in 97. Anyway, Christopher Guest, absolutely fantastic film. 
of course, um, uh, that Christopher Guest stars in. He didn't star in a whole bunch of those films all the time, Christopher. No. Uh, but this one... Directed you know, him, but yeah, this is the one, yeah. yeah. You're writing is right, but, but, he, but he puts himself in this one, and right at the center of it, and it's absolutely fantastic, uh, about a small town in Missouri uh, who learns that a Broadway, who think that a Broadway... So fun. <laughs> ...producer is coming to town and, and go all crazy. Eugene Levy, one of the uh, co-writers on this, and Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara, and just the whole dadgum... It's, it's the, the whole team, the yeah, whole troop. Exactly, exactly. Just all there together, and the band is really, really hot. It's just, it's just an absolutely wonderful movie. This is from the Warner Archive collection as well. A couple of special features, which include an audio commentary uh, uh, track for, with Christopher uh, and Eugene Levy and a few additional scenes. Uh, and, and you know, theatrical trailer stuff like that. Not, you know, it's not packed, yep. not jam-packed yep. or anything, yep. but frankly... I would mostly put this in and turn on that commentary track and sit back and just have a hoot to hear what these guys have to say. That's what I would do with that. And I should tease, too, we, uh, we do have another interview today, but it relates to one of the movies that's going to be mentioned today. kind of relates to it. Uh, so we'll, we'll wait till we get there. Um, also Warner Archive, a couple other Warner Archive titles here. Uh, one is a, a regular DVD-R. It's not a Blu-ray. With Lucille Ball, very early Lucille Ball performance, in Beauty for the Asking, uh, which is a which is a really interesting um, uh, 1939 film, kind of a, a really an overlooked RKO picture from the year because in 1939, you know, it was like the greatest year ever. Like the top 50 films were all classics. Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, Gunga Din. Mm. I mean, it's just endless. You know, you just go down the line of the, the all the all the films from that year, but. Um, uh, yeah, this is a, this is not a bad little uh, little thing to rediscover. Uh, some actors in here that you've probably never heard of and will never hear of again, uh, like Frida Innescourt and uh, Patrick Knowles. Uh, but it, you know, this is a this is actually quite a quite a fun little uh, otherwise sort of negligible movie, mainly because uh, Lucille Ball plays. You know, she's really great as this manicurist of all things. But um, it's really it's a it's a nice little. Uh, little minor rediscovery. Well, uh, worth checking out. Doris Anderson and Paul Jericho screenplay. Yeah. 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 They can write. Yeah. And um, then also, lastly, from Warner Archive, is The Hidden. This is a movie that I find interesting winds up on the, uh, on the Warner Archive uh, list because it's a more recent film. It's a new line of film. But it's kind of a, it's sort of an orphan movie in many respects. It was, it was a genre sensation on a cult level, but it never really kind of broke out mm. at the time. And um, there's a commentary here with Jack Shoulder, the, uh, the director, and uh, Tim Hunter, and a uh, special effects production footage thing here that he also narrates, and then a trailer. So there are a few extras on here. But the um, it was I remember this being I remember really enjoying this movie. This was the kind of movie you went to see at the theater. I went to see yeah, this movie for sure, back for sure. Day, back in the day, Michael Nouri, Claudia Christian. Uh, that whole sequence when the yeah. it's a, it's about an alien uh, that, that, that 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 comes here and the alien is uh, is, is running amok and then there's an alien hunter yeah and and and, and the and the Kyle, alien Kyle McLaughlin okay, yeah. basically kind of doing an early version of uh, Agent Cooper yeah, in many exactly, respects exactly in many respects yeah. and Claudia Christian for a while anyway yeah. is the alien and she's crazy hot and she's driving the what is it the Maserati or yeah. whatever yeah, they, and it's just you know it's it's pretty neat movie and. And Michael Nuri trying to figure out what the hell's going on. He's this cop, you know, who's trying to figure out what's going on. It's but a real, it's a real kind of a science fiction noir thing. Yeah, and it's in many respects, it's a little bit like that. Uh, what's the uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson movie of a few years ago? 
Uh, what do we think? Where of? she's the alien. I don't know what movie we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it, it's got a kind of a vibe like that. It's science fictiony noiry, but anyway. Uh, let's see I, what I, else. I got Dawn of the Dead over here, yeah. which is only interesting. This is the 2004 uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Zack Snyder's. It's only interesting because you know we re recently lost George. Yeah. Uh, and George's film Dawn of the Dead was 1978, which I always liked. I thought was a, a very worthy. Um, uh, among his follow-ups to his original Night of the Living Dead, uh, his Dawn of the Dead was very, very worthy. Zack Snyder's film, uh, you know, really good fun is what uh, Ebert and Roper called it, and I think that's, that's probably pretty damn true. What's mostly neat about this is all the special features on it. And I, you just handed me a, 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 a Land, Land, of, of, the Land of the Dead, which is coming out with it. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, cool. And the, so these things are just jam-packed. I mean, so you love the movies, that's great. You love the movies, you're going to enjoy these. But what you're really going to be getting here are just two jam-packed uh, collector's editions uh, that have everything you can possibly think of on disc one and disc two, two discs in each one of these things. Um, so that's what you want to want to be picking what these you, up for. What are your feelings about the Zack Snyder? I, I mean, everyone knows how I feel about Zack Snyder, so well, there's no I point. Feel, I feel the same way about Zack yeah. that, that you feel about it. Well, you know, look, this, the thing that I've always said about Zack uh, when it comes to his filmmaking, it's that he has an imprimatur, and he puts it on everything. Yeah. Um, but it's familiar, and it's not interesting. He's the reverse, for instance, of J.J. Abrams. We talk about him, mm -hmm. too, who has no imprimatur whatsoever. But None. basically, uh, uh, you know, he, he's water. Uh, and so he makes a Star Trek film. He makes a, a film that looks like a Spielberg film. And then, yeah. you know, so it, 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 you He's know. what you want if you want somebody to sort of uh, rejuvenate something old without making it look too too distinctive. Keeping it familiar. Yeah. Zach, though, yeah. he takes that Superman film and he, and he makes it look just like the 300, yeah. which is True. You know, amazing. As I've said many times, everything in a Zack Snyder movie is... Uh, is um, is wet and metallic, <laughs> and that's just it. You know, in, in, in pose, a vignette, in a vignette, pose and look wet and look metallic, and that's all he needs out of you. Um, so Twilight Time has pretty good uh, set this month. All of it available at either ScreenArchives.com or TwilightTimeMovies.com. Uh, remember, these are uh, limited releases, only three thousand units piece. So once they're gone, they're gone. Sometimes they re-release this stuff, but not that often. So uh, these Twilight Time titles are, uh, are wonderful collectible Blu-rays, mined typically from studio archives, so they get special uh, licensing deals on some of these, which were released previously perhaps on a, on a DVD. But the, uh, the four this time, uh, and boy, I'll tell you, next month is a real barn burner. It's great. Uh, the four this time include a really interesting, often forgotten Michael Caine movie called Play Dirty. Uh, this is from 1968, Michael Caine's heyday. and uh, I'll, I'll say yeah, right. The six. I mean, he owned oh, the nineteen sixties. Get, get Carter and oh, yeah, so, so Alfie, good. man, man who would be king yeah. with, uh, with, yeah, John Carter. It, it, it's it, he and Connery were just fantastic in that film. Anyway, like all of these, it, uh, all the Twilight Time releases, it has an isolated music and effects track, which is really really fun. Uh, and uh, you know, this is a, a pretty solid adventure film directed by um, uh, Andre de Toth. And this is allegedly, and I'm not, I, I, I have not had a chance to really, really research this because it says this is Andre de Toth's final film. Although I think de Toth may have done uh, one more film that may not have been released. I'd have to, I'd have to look into it. 
Uh, but anyway, this is a, a North African World War II movie, you know, just combat. Uh, back when everybody just wanted to make adventure movies and blow stuff up, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And there's just nothing better than having a movie where everything blows up and Michael Caine's in the middle of it. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, same cinematographer as The Dirty Dozen, and uh, it's a really fun film. It's just, uh, it, you know, Andre de Toth was a real good workmanlike director, and uh, Michael Caine just has so much fun, and stuff blows up, and there's guns and Nazis, and it's great. It's play dirty. There is also The Pirates of Blood River, which uh, I have not seen in quite a long time, and uh, I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot again, because the last time I saw this, it was on television at about uh, midnight or something, and I remember thinking, that's not a very good movie. And you know what? I still don't think it's a very good movie, but I actually was able to sort of hang on to uh, some of the performances in it, which are actually quite enjoyable. Um, it's uh, you know you've got uh, Oliver Reed shows up in here, and Christopher Lee, of course, is the you know is, is chewing the scenery, and I can I can kind of hang with that. Um, but it uh, you know it's it is otherwise just a, a kind of one of those twisted. Um, you know, it's all about the Huguenots, and it's a, it's it's one of those really really stretching history kind of movies. Um, a little bit better is Captain from Castile, which was made in 1947. Really really beautifully shot, uh, Henry King directed uh, period film uh, from the 20th Century Fox period when they were doing a lot of these big epics, based on a novel. Uh, and uh, really noteworthy mainly as a star vehicle for Tyrone Power, another student of my father's, as long as I'm dropping names. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is all about, it was Cesar Romero plays uh, Cortez. That's all you need to know. Cesar Romero is Cortez. He plays it with as much relish as he did the, uh, the Joker. And, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of seen this whole routine before, this kind of period piece where they make everything look, you know, they take a, a, a period of history, an event, a particular place and time that's, you know, should be really gritty, and they romanticize the daylights out of it. And that's what they did in the 1940s. That's what people expected. Uh, you know, so Cesar Romero is Cortez, and Tyrone Power uh, plays the, uh, plays the, uh, the, the sort of a, a guy who becomes a part of the Spanish uh, expedition on, you know, under Cortez. And um, the, the most interesting part of this, significantly, is that Jay Silverheels, mm. most famous for playing Tonto, actually Long plays, has a, has, a, has a part here as an Aztec slave, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, I'd never seen Jay Silverheels in anything else. The first time I had seen this, I didn't even realize that he was the guy. So it was, mm. occurred to me. And then lastly, uh, a movie that is a really, has a real curious reputation, uh, Wild Bill. With uh, Jeff Bridges and Alan Barkin. I got to tell you, I'm one of the few. And, you know, if you dig around out there, you can find my review of that movie. Yeah. I like that movie. I, I'm, I'm the outlier yeah. on that and on Kevin Costner, Lawrence Kasdan's Wired Earth. I was just going to compare the two, so I'm glad you did it first. Yeah, you know, I, I think that those, because, you know, there were several of these movies. Tombstone was the other Wired Earth movie, you know, the, the um, uh, uh, Kurt Russell. Of that period, yeah. Of that period, yeah. Um, and uh, and there were a, a couple of other significant westerns you talked about Unforgiven yeah. at the top of the show, yeah. uh, and this was one of them among that run, what, yeah. maybe a twenty year run altogether, yeah. maybe fifteen twenty years that starts with probably Unforgiven. That, yeah. Silverado was in there. Dances with Wolves might Dances be the beginning. Dances with Wolves might yeah. be right there at the top. Silverado's a little bit before that, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and I got to tell you that that one this this movie did not particularly Jeff Bridges's performance in this movie, which begins. 
his run as the sort of crusty cowboy that he's yeah. been doing for, for a Which while. he's still doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, yeah. Yeah. you saw the latest Kingsman. That's exactly what he's doing. Um, it, it, Jeff Bridges has been chewing tobacco without actually chewing tobacco for about the last <laughs> seven or eight years. And all his parts, he's kind of got a little something between his cheek and gum. He had the smartest thing to say. He had the smartest thing to say about Harvey. You quoted him for me. Yeah, he said he said uh, he's facing his demons right now, and I hope he leans into his demons and comes out a better person. Yeah. That's a really amazingly gracious thing to say. Yeah. Um, anyway, Jeff Bridges, I agree, is really good in this. And I think this film really got kind of piled on a little. If it had been directed by anyone other than Walter Hill, mm -hmm. I think it might have gotten a little more respect. But people, Walter Hill's never gotten a lot of respect as and a director. And he's made about three solid uh, Last Man Standing. Yeah. Bruce Willis adaptation yeah. of Jojimbo, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and this movie, and he had a recent, he had one recently. It wasn't very good. But I the, love Forty Eight Hours. Forty Eight Hours. Right? I love Streets of Fire. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of great Walter Hill movies. I, I'll even defend The Driver and the Warriors, yeah, which are, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of good Walter Hill stuff from the period. Uh, well, he's he clearly aspiring to something richer here. Uh, now the uh, you know the, then the Zanuck produced this Richard Zanuck and Lily, Lily Feeney Zanuck. Uh, it's got a you know it's got a a lot of great production value. And the uh, I, full disclosure, the cinematographer for this film and for most recent Walter Hill films is Lloyd Ahern, who is a very, very good friend. Uh, in fact, where we're where we're sitting right now, I can almost see his house. <laughs> um, and uh, seriously, it's like right there. And uh, Lloyd Lloyd's an, uh, a very, very good friend, um, and uh, I've known him for many, many years. Lloyd, you know, started as a clapper boy because his dad was the cinematographer for Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Oh, wow. So he came up, you know, in yeah. the system. And uh, one of the interesting things about Will Bill, Wild Bill is that there are flashbacks in here which were shot on videotape. And you can tell it's very video. It's very black and white, desaturated to real video to film look, like in a really archaic way. They're not trying to hide the video. They're sort of owning the video. And it's a period film. And, you know, it's a Western. And there's this video look that's very, very jarring. And yet at the same time, it totally works. Yeah. And uh, I, it was probably about, a gosh, about two, three years ago that I was actually talking to Lloyd, and I asked him, and I said, you know, that was, I, I, I need to ask you about the Wild Bill, the video thing. What That was such uh, a, a really daring stylistic choice, because 1995, there's no high def. Mm -hmm. you're, you're just totally going video, like not even black and white film. And... He said, "Yeah, that was Walter's idea, and he he just he thought that it would it would give it a style. It would let it be something. It would let it live in a universe all its own, mm -hmm. right? You know, because once that happens, you're like, okay, this is not a regular western. This is this is not a new western. This is not a revisionist western. This world, this is its own. It just creates a universe of its own, and it totally works. It's a it was a daring thing to do, and I give it all the credit in the world. I agree completely. Yeah. Oh, you, you you I got Calamity Jane, best Calamity Jane." Uh, Ellen Barkin in that yeah. movie. As I, I'm just, it just it was popping yeah. into my head. The other thing that I loved about that movie, and yeah. that's what it is. Yep, it was Ellen Barkin's Calamity Jane. Totally, she's fantastic. Absolutely right? fantastic. Yeah, she's great. Uh, what do I got? I got some. I got some horror. Not horror, but, but I guess uh, sci-fi over here. Uh, 1940, one million BC. Yeah, the, the Victor Mature, uh, uh, one million BC. You know, aside from the fact that this film is, uh, in, in terms of science, completely and totally historically incorrect, um, humans of various different sorts with dinosaurs of various different sorts. Okay, we'll let it go. 
uh, but what the heck, Victor Mature, Carol Landis, Lon Chaney Jr., uh, Conrad Nagel, uh, of course, directed by Hal Roach and Hal Roach Jr. Um, you know, this film is a lot of fun and spawned a whole lot of other films uh, at the top of that. Uh, you know, in, in, in 1940, as we, we made that run through the war years and up into the 50s, these sorts of films would come to be those sort of regular films that we would be going to see for the next uh, several years, and this one's a whole lot of fun. Uh, this is a Blu-ray with not a whole lot on it, Wade. Yeah, a I commentary know. track by, uh, you know, a couple of film experts, but not much more than that. And uh, on that all similar front, oh, did you, you got another one that you wanted to I was gonna, to I was going to, I was just going to, I was going to toss over, you, Lucy. Yeah. Lucy. Ball? Uh, Ball? Scarlett Johansson. We were talking about it a minute was, ago. Was it, was it Lucy? Was it Lucy? No, it's not Lucy. It's, it's not Lucy. Uh, no, whatever. I'll, anyway. I'll, I'll pull it up. Uh, I'll talk about Topper while you're looking at that. 1937 Topper. Uh, Constant Bennett and Cary Grant. Uh, uh, this was such a macabre of a movie to me. I mean, they die, uh, you know, and they come back as ghosts and they haunt this house and they help this guy. And I don't know. It's sophisticated in a certain sort of way. Under the skin. Under. Oh, yes. Right. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah Jonathan very, Glazer. Yeah. 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 Excellent. 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 Anyway. So uh, 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 this was a lot of fun. Uh, very light. Uh, Cary Grant film Topper uh, with Burt Young and Billy Burke. Um, you know, a lot of fun. Uh, the Devil's Reign on Blu-ray from Severin. Uh, so The Devil's Reign, if you've never seen it, is a 1975 uh, horror exploitation film that is 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 so absolutely wonderfully campy. You just you, you've got to see it. It is. This is like somebody made my dream list of people that I would have wanted to see in an exploitation film. If this had been released in 1968, it would have been even better. By 1975, the genre is starting to run a little thin, but it's like somebody made it made my dream list. Like they went and they got Dr. Uh, uh, Robert F uh, Fuest, who directed The Abominable Dr. Fibes, right? Which is one of the better exploitation films. And then here's who they pack into the into the into the cast. Not just the aforementioned Ida Lupino, who I absolutely adore. Oh no. Not just uh, Eddie Albert, oh no. <laughs> Not just a, a young John Travolta and a Tom Skerritt, oh no. They get Keenan Wynn, uh -huh. who of course, you know, Dr. Strangelove, you're going to have to answer the Coca-Cola company. They get um, Ernest Borgnine. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, Ernest Borgnine as a, as a satanic priest. It's the best thing in the world. Marty. And even better, the Shat. Oh, William, William Shatner. Shatner. Yes, yeah. William Shatner is in The Devil's Reign. And uh, it is, uh, it, it's really, it's, this thing is just absolutely to die for. This is one of the most enjoyable drive-in schlock horror films you will ever see in your life. It is absolutely a stone-cold riot. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's a whole, you know, satanic priest, Church of Satan thing. You don't need to know anything more about that. It is absolutely a stone-cold riot. It is so much fun. Uh, and uh, Severin just pulls out all the stops. The transfer is really colorful, very pristine, really, really rich colors. Uh, much better audio than this film has ever had in any other format. I'm sure most people probably saw this, you know, in a drive-in with a little tiny speaker next to your <laughs> next to your window and a very tinny. No, no, no. This thing, it's actually got pretty good audio. And it's really, it's an awful lot of fun. So uh, you got to check it out. The Devil's Reign is just a an exploitation classic. Highly, highly recommended. 
Superman, the movie, is now out on a very strange double feature as well from Warner Brothers. Um, this is extremely unusual. So the original, the original theatrical cut of Superman. Chris Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve. Still the, the best Superman. Far and away the best. People argue about the Batman movies. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. I can, I can actually see that. You know, Tim Burton, uh, Christopher Nolan, et cetera. But you know what? Far and away, Superman, Christopher Reeves, 1978. Yeah. And my, my favorite Superman poster is of him in Superman 3 holding uh, Richard Pryor in his arms. <laughs> By the time we get to the Richard Pryor, then, then we got some. But that movie in the second one, of course. But yes. what do we have here? What is this wacky DVD? So, so this is really a bit of an unusual thing. So uh, the movie released in 1978 theatrically at a running time of about 143 minutes. And uh, there is also a 151-minute version, you know, about seven, eight minutes worth of additional material that constitutes the special edition. And then there is also a 188-minute television cut, which is called the extended cut. The original version of this is not here. The original 143-minute theatrical cut is not here. This is the special edition with the extra eight minutes, seven, eight minutes. And then it has the three-hour television cut on a single two-film Blu-ray. Um, I'm not quite sure. I, I mean, if you're a super, super Superman fan and you are a real completist and you want to have every single version of this ever, that's fine. I don't find that... Uh, this is all either one of these are really all that impressive. Uh, you know, the, the special edition director's cut is fine. It's, you know, it's still not better than the 78 cut. There's nothing particularly amazing about it. It's, you know, it's fine. It's got some, some bits. And then, uh, I don't really know that we need three hours of Superman, to be honest. Mm. No, not even, the, not even the good Superman. Yeah. That, that, I don't know that we need that. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, Halloween television cut that has kind of a cult following. You know, there's an extra cut. There's all these additional stuff and completists just... Anyway. So anyway, that, so that's out there. It's a it's a curious double feature. Um, but there it is. So Warner Brothers is feeding the fans even more Superman cuts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, real quickly, a thing called Dudes. This is an old Penelope Spheres film. Collector's edition with John Cryer and Daniel Roebuck. I had totally forgotten this existed. It was the, uh, they, call, they called it a punk rock western. This is from the Shout Select line. Uh, has all new material on it too. Shout has kind of, I mean, most of the Shout Select stuff is thing, are there things that I really genuinely remember very fondly. I don't remember this very fondly. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really peculiar kind of a genre splitting weird experiment. Um, I do Flea was in it. Yeah, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? Yeah, I, I, yes, and uh, there's, yeah, and, and it's, it's just odd. Uh, yeah, it's a strange movie. The only thing I remember positively about it is that Catherine Mary Stewart is in it, who was I was a yes. really big fan of at the time yes. from you know Last Starfighter and yeah. you know, Comet. I I just I really enjoyed her work at the time. I'm sad that she sort of vanished, but um, yeah, it is like an Elvis impersonator. It's just a it's one of those odd kind of goes along with Repo Man a little yeah. bit. One of those you know there were these weird genre splitting movies from the '80s that that you just kind of scratch your head. But anyway. Has a bit of a cult following, I guess. John Cryer's good in it. Um, this is after. This is about when Penelope Spears decided to go much more mainstream, and for understandable reasons. Anyway, uh, so this Blu-ray DVD combo set, collector's edition of Dudes from Shout Select, uh, has a bunch of features on it: new interviews with Penelope Spears and a lot of the other people involved in the film, including Catherine Mary Stewart. 
uh, theatrical trailer and a featurette on the making of the film. Uh, I got a couple from the middle 80s as well here. Three O'Clock High. I remember this movie. It's really weird. These movies, uh, I I, I saw these movies in the middle 80s when they came out. I went went to the theater to, to see these movies. And I don't know, it's just sort of odd. You know, a Phil Janu movie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Richard Christian. Uh, that was Matheson. his, you know, there's, well, finish, finish it. Well, well it's you, Casey Shemosko, and, you know, Annie Ryan, Richard Tyson, yeah. all of these guys, you know, when they were, you know, Casey yeah. and, and all of this stuff. And I remember this being a very popular movie. It was kind of a neat movie. It's about this kid who, who uh, uh, at three o'clock, is going to have to fight this other, this other yeah. kid, right? Yeah. Uh, and and you know, he, he's, uh, he's and the other kid's like this big. But you remember Richard Tyson? Because yeah. Richard Tyson, he had a sort of like a chest on him and some arms on him, and that was before he did red, and then he did Red Shoe, Di- was it red Shoe Diaries. Yes, or yes, exactly, yeah. exactly, right. Yeah. And and the thing that I liked about this movie is that it, it it didn't walk down that same path, right? I mean, it seemed like yeah. an after school special, right? But there was actually this other layer of something kind of sophisticated going on in this movie. Both of these guys were outsiders. They were both kind of weirdos. And they had more in common that they, the, 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 you know, and, and, I, and I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I was like that in high school. It was yeah. like that. That's what it was like. And, and anyway, Three O'Clock High was one of those movies. There was a whole bunch of them in the Middle Ages. One you just mentioned that, yeah, of course, we, we've got, that's when we would have had our, you know, a, a breakfast club, you know, sure. all of that stuff. That yeah. stuff was happening. That was interesting. From, you know, from, in hindsight, these things all have sort of like a shape. I remember very well uh, Matt Reeves, yeah. director of Planet of the Apes movies. I remember when Matt was at USC and I was acting in his in his little movies and, and, and thinking, someday... Uh, the the uh, Phil Juano had just graduated mm-hmm. from U- USC. USC guy, yeah. USC. I was at UCLA. Matt was USC, and uh, Phil Juano was like, you know, he was Mr. Hot Stuff. Oh yeah, I just did. I just met with Spielberg, and I remember Matt telling me like, yeah, I don't. I, this guy, he's really kind of full of himself, you know. Mm. He's he's and you know, it's a funny thing now because everybody from that class behind him that he was, you know, so. He's not. What's Phil Joanna doing oh, now? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I would have to look. I mean, he had a career, final analysis, made yeah, some he movies, made, he made, he made, made Rattle and Hum, you know, a couple of a couple of studio films and stuff like that. But no, you know, he's not. He's not the hot guy anymore. Well, hasn't been for twenty years. He was always biting De Palma, who was biting Hitchcock. Yeah. So you know, I mean, yeah. it was just this big bite. The other one is Slaughter High. Also, you know, this is more of a horror film. You know, a revenge kind of kind of movie. Uh, uh, kid teased and. And and uh, and horribly mutilated in high school comes back for a high school reunion and decides to get uh, uh, decides to get the uh, you know revenge yeah. on all that audio commentary here uh, from the directors and, and but again this is another one of those movies from yep. the middle eighties mm-hmm. came out and they, and it sort of resonated and sits yeah. in my head right to this day um, so interesting stuff here slaughter high and three o'clock high. <laughs> We've got a couple of criterions, really great criterions. I can't even, I don't even know where to begin. So here's where I'm going to begin. Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me on Criterion. I hope this means that the entire David Lynch catalog is going to come out on Criterion now because it deserves it. I want my Blu ray of Lost Highway. Can yes. I just say that? My wife worked on the movie. I only have it on DVD. It's not on Blu ray. It needs to be. Let's just get that out there. Uh, so Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is the prequel movie that was made after the original series and that uh, premiered at Cannes, and I was there that year at Cannes in 1992, uh, and boy, I'll tell you, it really it brought the house down. Uh, this is a terrific movie, and uh, it, you don't even have to be completely immersed in the Twin Peaks 
mythology of the series, the original series, to appreciate it. It's just, it's a, it's a real head trip and it's a lot of fun. Uh, this includes everything that you could possibly want. They did a 4K digital transfer restoration. They maxed it out with 7.1 DTS uh, audio and this thing just blows the roof off. Um, and of course, you know, we, we're coming off of what, maybe a month or so ago that the... The, the, the new, yeah, the, yeah the, the Return Twin Peaks series. Uh, you do want to watch this if you are watching that. Yes, you do. For and, sure. Yeah. And and that's all, and I would also recommend you watch The Missing Pieces, which is an hour and a half of deleted and alternate stuff. Because there are things that you learn from The Missing Pieces, the deleted stuff especially, that do kind of answer some questions. So it's, it, it's not just your usual deleted scene stuff. Uh, this also has the 2014 interviews. Uh, new interviews with that, uh, with uh, Shirley and Angelo Badalamente, and uh, excerpts from the Lynch on Lynch uh, part of the 1997 uh, book. So that is just a sensational release. And the other criterion this week is a Kubrick film. And uh, for my money, it's easily one of Kubrick's three best films. I, I go back and forth between, you know, 2001 is always at the top, and then next is, you know, Strange Love or... Barry Lyndon. Mm. Uh, Barry Lyndon is is one of the most beautifully photographed films of all time. Mm, that's a film. Uh, the lenses. He, they invented lenses yes. for the film. Yeah. F one. Yeah, so that he could shoot with that candlelight. Yeah. Yeah. And and crazy. no one and no one moves because they'll be out of focus. Yeah. That's why everyone in those candlelit scenes. Those that's scenes why they're all so painterly. Yeah. It's just it's a magnificent film. Uh, adapted from the unadaptable novel by William Makepeace Thackeray, which is you know. I, who was a contemporary of many other great authors and whose books have not really been adapted into movies to any great extent. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you, this has just, it's loaded and loaded and loaded. They even have an original 1980 interview with John Alcott, who won an Oscar for shooting this film very deservedly. Um, there's even uh, a, an essay from the 1976 issue of American Cinematographer among the extras. Uh, the thing with uh, historian uh, Christopher Frayling uh, talking to Ken Adam, who was the production designer. I mean, it's just... This is literally a film school in a box. This is everything that Criterion needs to be. It's Barry Lyndon on Blu-ray. It just does not get better than this. Uh, Ryan O'Neill absolutely kills it. And, um, you know, he does it with an Irish accent. Who knew? Fantastic. Really, really, really good. One of Kubrick's very best. Uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. Um, um, a, a young um, uh, Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill was a very we forget because these you know years yeah. go by. Ryan O'Neill was a very good actor. He really was as a young man. Drama, yeah. drama and comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was actually very good. He and his daughter, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, of the original film. Uh, a lot of folks will forget that there was an original Buffy the, Buffy the Vampire Slayer film. Yep. Uh, 1992, Fran Rubel Kazooie uh, directed this movie. Not just a, a lot of people. He wrote this theory. He, you know, he created the character and wrote the film. And obviously, the the, the television series that came later with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, the neat thing that I always liked about this movie it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly big hit movie. So I was a little surprised that it became a uh, a big hit television yeah. series. Uh, but I love the way Christy Swanson. This is the 25th year anniversary edition, by the way, Blu-ray, digital HD Blu-ray. Uh, 25 years. I, I love the way Christy Swanson played Buffy. She plays Buffy completely different. Totally. Uh, she, she's a little surly. She's, yeah. she, you, you know, she's 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 uh, she's sharper yeah. than than you know the Buffy on television. She's sort of less girly. She owns it a little bit more. Yeah. She yeah. she, she kind of like 
dips into it a little bit more. She enjoys killing those vampires. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. uh, she's she's glad to do it, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. not bothering her at all. Anyway, uh, special features here include a featurette and a whole bunch of other stuff. Luke uh, uh, Luke Perry, of course, was in this film. Paul Rubens, of course, is in this film. Rick Hara is in. Uh, it's in this film with this just you know it's like it's just pretty 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 neat. So if you're a Buffy completist, you're probably gonna want to go ahead and grab the Buffy the Vampire Slayer original 25th year anniversary edition release. Uh, the old dark house is actually a comedy. William no, Castle. No, it isn't. <laughs> William Castle. No, James Whale. Yeah, yeah. The old dark house. I think William Castle remade this. And yeah, I know he made one called The Old Dark House for sure. Yeah, but James Whale. Yeah. The, this the, is the original the original Frankenstein. Yeah. James Whale. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is when uh, this is a, a James Whale film from the very very early sound era, 1932. When he is uh, he is really you know really really uh, getting it going with Universal. Oh yeah, the castle the film would have been like in the sixties. Yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is James Whale, uh, early sound horror film, suspense horror film from nineteen thirty two, uh, which features the very very first ever starring role for Boris Karloff, who basically plays the butler of this old dark house. And you realize very quickly where the idea of Lurch came from for the Adams <laughs> family. Uh, so yes, that is that is also a very very Karloffian uh, thing. It is uh, this is based on a novel that was published just a few years earlier called Benighted, and uh, this is from the uh, Cohen Film Collection, the good people at Cohen, for whom full disclosure, both Tim and I have done audio commentaries, and uh, this is uh, this is one of the the lesser known. But better universal horror films from the period. Everyone focuses on you know the Mummy and Frankenstein and Dracula and all the usual all the usual universal monsters. But mm -hmm. this is actually really amazing. Uh, the idea is about you know it's very Agatha Christie in a certain sense too. A bunch of people you know come upon an, an old dark house, and uh, everything that transpires is of course both what you would expect and what you would not necessarily expect. It's beautifully shot as as everything that uh, James Whale did, and uh, really, really very interesting film. It's worth checking out. Uh, Cohen dipped deep into the uh, the archives over at Universal for this one, and uh, what a great one! Really, really great. Uh, Warrior, you know this movie, two thousand eleven, such an odd movie. I like this movie. It didn't do very well when it came I out. Tom Hardy. I, can, I still kind of struggle with it. It, it's, yeah. it, 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 it reminded me in some ways of the old Matthew Modine film. Yeah. Uh, 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 that, that, the wrestling film Vision Quest. Yeah. Uh, thing. But anyway, basically it's about these two brothers. Uh, Tom Hardy is one. Joel Edgerton, the other one. Tom Hardy is this married guy. He's a high school teacher, high school wrestling coach or whatever. And, uh, you know, and he's not making ends meet. And, and, and he starts sort of like wrestling in these underground wrestling things, mm -hmm. which I guess exist. Uh, and then he has his brother who's uh, who's an actual warrior. He was, he was in the war. I forget which one of the many wars that we are fighting that he was in. But, <laughs> but he's in one of the wars. And, 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 and anyway, in a roundabout set of circumstances, he ends up pitted against his brother in a very important match. These two guys, and they have this alcoholic father played by Nick Nolte. And I got to, you know, there's, there's something about this movie that kind of got me. I, you know, it's sort of like it's a very manly Gavin O'Connor, mm -hmm. of course, very manly movie. Uh, but there's a certain amount of heart in it. And at the end of it, it you know, it's, it's a story about these two brothers, you know. Uh, and I don't know, I kind of dug at it, and I think it's, it's 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 becoming something of a cult favorite. I've had a few people 
mentioned this movie to me sort of like out of the blue when we were talking about, you know, uh, whether it was Rocky or, 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 or you know, the new Rocky or, or something like that, and, and, you know, the fighter. And they would throw this movie in with those movies, and they were really sincere about it, and I kind of think I, I might agree with them about that. Anyway, this uh, is a uh, 4K Ultra HD uh, two-disc set, all kinds of stuff on it. Um, uh, from director Gavin O'Connor. Strange, strange movie to put out in 4K, isn't it? Yeah, I would think so because you know, it's, mostly it's in that ring, uh, yeah. and then sort of little dark environs yeah. and fighting and alleys. I'm just wondering what the what the the thought process was. It, it literally looks like like that. This yeah. movie. It looks, yeah. I, I'm just wondering what the thought process is, and you're looking, you're thinking about what movies to get out there to the 4K early adopters. I'm wondering why they thought this would. Anyway, as opposed to something with wide vistas yeah. and a great yeah. Video. yeah. Anyway. Uh, we've also got something that should be on 4K, frankly, uh, 20th Century Fox. Get on that. L.A. Confidential, 20th century and uh, 20th anniversary edition of L.A. Confidential from 20th Century Fox. Uh, there's a tongue twister. Uh, here's I love L.A. Confidential. I absolutely love this movie. Yeah. Uh, it's just we it's lost a, Curtis not too long ago. I think. Yeah. I know. It's just it's so sad. Uh, great. Great kind of modern classic noir set during the original noir period, uh, written by Brian Helgeland and Curtis Hansen, directed by Curtis Hansen, uh, produced by Arnon Milchan, uh, all based on the great James Elroy novel. Uh, you know, Dante Spinotti. I mean, everybody involved in this is just really just killing it. They're, they're all working at the peak talent. And the thing that's amazing about L.A. Confidential is this film in 1997 ran the table yeah. and won the L.A. Film Critics, National Board of Review, New York Film Critics, uh, the uh, National Society of Film Critics. It swept all of those awards. First film since Schindler's List to sweep all the critics' awards and then go on to actually lose the Academy Award yeah. to Titanic. Yeah. So sad. Kim Basinger finally got hers, though. She yeah. did. That was good. But a uh, ton of extras on here. Commentary with uh, Andrew Saris, James Elroy, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, everybody. It's just on and on and on and on. Uh, everybody's in on this commentary. Uh, it's really a terrific commentary given that, you know, it's edited together from all that stuff. Lots of featurettes. Um, you know, it, it's just there's a music-only track. It's just wonderful. If you love this movie, this is the only, only way to have it. Uh, get rid of that earlier Blu-ray and grab that one. A lot of... And, and lot speaking of, of Titanic, we're going to talk about a... <laughs> I'll, but carry on. I'll knock these off real quick. Dream Girls. Yeah. Jamie Foxx, Beyonce Knowles, and Eddie Murphy, who should have won... Gosh, he was so good at ...that this. Academy Award that year. I, I, it is still my feeling that him not... He was nominated. Yeah. Did him not winning that Academy Award that year sort of broke Eddie? I think it did. Uh, I and think he, it he did. hasn't been the same since. He hasn't, he hasn't been the same in comedy. Hasn't he, he did that drama, yeah. Mr. Church? But you know, he just—it's just like he said, "All right, then the hell with it." Yeah, I think he—he's uh, I, he, so good in this. I mean, so unbelievably good. It, you realize what a great dramatic actor he can be. It's a really layered performance. James so Early good. Thunder. He says the combination of sort of like a sort of a James Brownie, sort of a Bobby Womack, yeah, sort of yeah. a you know a, amalgamation of these guys. Yeah. He does all his performances himself. Eddie, he's yeah. singing he's, in that movie, just so like good. Beyonce and everybody yeah. else. He's, and you know, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, Bill Condon, uh, a, a very good movie that I like a lot. This has a whole bunch of stuff on it, including a photo book and some extended alternate scenes and the, in, in the director's um, extended edition, which is on this, uh, and never-before-seen audition footage from a very young Jennifer Hudson. A, young, a younger and much heavier Jennifer Hudson. She never put that weight back on. Way no, to go, she Jen. Didn't. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, vice versa from the body switching year of Big, and then there was the one with Dudley Moore. And, oh, and, and, yeah, and, 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 yeah, that, that yeah, horrible. Yeah, a couple uh, Jamie Lee Curtis yeah, switched that, up with a, with I think uh, who was the it was the little the little girl that went crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, this the, this was a year of all the body switching movies, and one of them was Vice Versa with Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage. A young Fred Savage she liked was, it. I'm sorry, I liked it. I liked you? it. I did. I'm sorry. Oh dear, I, they're all We're ridiculous, but I liked it. Uh, you know, Judge Reinhold just acting like a little kid, and Fred Savage trying to act like an adult. It, I don't know. The thing anyway. of it is, Judge Reinhold back then, anyway, his he had that face. Yeah. He looked he looked like he a, a little kid. Yeah, <laughs> he looked like with a in a man body. Yes, he did, and, and he was like pulling that thing. Anyway, whatever. And, and now, and now, uh, Fred Savage blue, is older. Fred Savage is older now than Judge Reinhold was <laughs> when he made that movie. Very true. <laughs> Planes, trains, and automobiles. Again, from the middle eighties, nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah. Uh, this is just—I uh, don't know—it's just a time for that. Celebrating its thirtieth anniversary. That's what this is for. Blu-ray, uh, DVD. Uh, you know, the late John Candy, the great Steve Martin, and the late John Hughes. Yes. Yeah. Planes, trains, and automobiles. The thing about this movie that again. Um, I like the most. As funny as it is, and it is funny. These two guys at the top of their game. Yep. It is so poignant. This movie is so ridiculously funny, and then at the end, it deigns to break your heart. Yes. And I'm like, you know what, John Hughes, you win, baby. You mm. win. He did that for his whole career. I know. He could do it. He could just do it whenever he home wanted alone. to. He could it's just make it alone. so goofy, and then he'd just break your right in half. But John, give John Candy props for being able to be a clown through this whole thing. And, at, and there's a crucial moment at the end of this where he looks into the camera. It's a point of view shot from the point of view of Steve Martin. And John Candy looks right up into the camera and he makes you cry. Oh, my goodness. He, he, it's, it's, like, like, it's like a giant, uh, like a baby polar bear or a baby oh, seal or something. It's amazing. It's like there and you just, you know. It's you, a you, moment. And, you know, and, and, and after doing, wreaking all of the mayhem yeah. that he wreaks in this movie, because he's yeah. the one wreaking the mayhem. Anyway, this thing is just packed full of all kinds of neat I stuff. Just, I just love this. Uh, special features, planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, and you know what? Yep. Let me tell you something. My wife has never seen this movie. Okay. Well, actually, this Thanksgiving, surprise me. But, this Thanksgiving, yeah. we're going to do a double feature. <laughs> we are. She doesn't know this yet, but we are going to watch... And, you know, my daughter will be, it's okay. It's not, there's some language here that's not appropriate. She'll be fine. She yeah. doesn't know those words yet. Uh, we're going to watch Home for the Holidays. Yeah. You have to see this at your father's <laughs> organ. He can't keep his hands <laughs> off it. And we're going to watch uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. We're going to watch this. Pretty much the only two Thanksgiving movies in existence, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tyler Perry, make a Thanksgiving Medea movie. Um, just saying, yeah. just saying, don't do Boo 3. Do, do, <laughs> do a Thanksgiving one. Medea, Medea and a turkey. That's uh, all I need to say. Malcolm D. Lee. There you go. So we, uh, we're going to wrap up this show of uh, classic tiles. We're going to talk about a bunch of kinos on Blu-ray. And then the last one of them is going to dovetail into our interview. And uh, the first of these is, uh, a, is from the F.W. Murnau uh, restoration operation in Germany. And this is the German version of Titanic, otherwise known as Titanic. <laughs> I can say that because I'm half German. This was actually made. This was a, this was a Nazi-approved uh, Goebbels deal from 1943, made during the war, mind you. Uh, and so you watch this, understanding that Americans and Brits in this are the bad guys. Yeah, the bad guys. Yeah. Just got to You just got to know that going in. But as a as historical artifact, it's very interesting. It's it's quite a good film. 
Um, the, probably a, a good reason why the uh, tide turned against Germany in 1943 because they put all their money into this movie and not into <laughs> into munitions. Uh, they should have got Lenny. They should have got Lenny to direct. It. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really really interesting film directed by Herbert Selpin. Never heard of him. I don't know anybody involved in this. I don't really know anybody who's in it. Uh, but it's uh, you know the what's interesting is this is that um, the director of this film. Um, actually committed suicide during the making of the film. And another guy finished the film uh, named Werner Klingler, but he doesn't get credit for it. In any case, it's a fascinating backstory on all this stuff. Uh, there's an audio commentary that you have to listen to by uh, Galen Studlar, who's the co-editor of Titanic Anatomy of a Blockbuster. And you got to listen to the commentary. The movie is almost meaningless without the commentary. It's, uh, it's really an interesting Blu-ray. Uh, we've also got from the Kino Classics line a, uh, the Mario Bava collection entry, Roy Colt and Winchester Jack. I've always found Mario Bava's westerns to be a little bit of a curiosity. Bava is, of course, a giallo filmmaker, and uh, primarily, and uh, you know, this 1970 western is a little bit weird because it's a spaghetti western made by a giallo guy, and uh, it's kind of also a, a satire and a spoof. Even though sometimes it feels like it's not, and in that sense, I, I could only really compare this to From Dusk Till Dawn, mm. which sort of tries to do the same thing a little bit. Uh, and I can see that Tarantino probably borrowed a few things from this anyway. Uh, so it is, it's 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 a it's a worthwhile curiosity, I would say. Roy Colt and Winchester Jack. Um, yeah, it's worth checking out. And then we got here. We got, here's the big pile from the uh, the Studio Classics line. This is what they uh, they came up with this month from uh, mining the archives of 20th Century Fox and other studios. Billy Wilder's Avanti with Jack Lemmon and Juliet Mills from 1972. Late stage Billy Wilder starting to strain a little bit. Not as good as uh, his earlier classics from the uh, the 50s and 60s by any means, but co-wrote it with I.L. Diamond, Izzy Diamond, mm. and uh, it still has you know that Wilder spark. There's still a lot of fun stuff in it, a lot of really really great moments with the uh, you know funny funny kind of romantic comedy stuff. Um, there are big big spaces between. You know, it's 140 minutes long, way too long for for the story that it tells. But uh, it's it's Avanti is still it's still a fun film. If you're a Billy Wilder fan, you'll still enjoy it. Clyde River. Oh yeah, he's funny. Uh, the Indian Runner, which was Sean Penn's uh, directing debut, mm. is still a very good film too. Quite auspicious, right? Isn't it? Yeah. I, I think I, I think Sean Penn has kind of become a lesser director as he's gone along. 1991. Uh, there's an interview with Sean Penn on here, as long along with an interview with Viggo Mortensen and David Morse. Uh, I, I I do think this is a very very good film, and I think that um, his his you know you see his strengths as a director. It's, Whatever happened it, to Valerie Golino? She's in that movie. Wait, that's a good question. She was in the Patrice LeConte film. Yeah. I think the hairdresser's husband, maybe, or something. It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, Young Doctors in Love, not a movie that I much cared for. This was Gary Marshall's first uh, feature attempt, moving out of television, and uh, it's a it's a mess. Produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, you know, scored by Maurice Jarre. It's just weird. Everything is all wrong about this movie. Makes no sense at all. It's kind of a, it's sort of a satire and a spoof of, uh, you know, the, the medical soap opera genre, uh, but it never really comes together. There's an audio commentary here with uh, uh, Pat Healy and uh, Jim Healy, uh, which is 
kind of a little bit insightful, but otherwise not much. I mean, you know, Sean Young is kind of having her moment again because mm. she came out of the woodworks to get digitized for uh, the new Blade Runner. Yeah, but 2049. Yeah. We haven't talked about that, have we? No, not really. We'll do that on another show. Uh, George Papard in Canon for Cordoba. Uh, this is kind of a standard 1970 uh, kind of semi-peckinpah film. Uh, everybody wanted to make things look like the Wild Bunch around that time, and yeah, it's understandable. Uh, so this all takes place during the 1912 Mexican Revolution. It's really just a, a lot of action and not much else. Directed by Paul Wendkos. It's, a, it's an okay film. Canon for Cordoba. Um, much better is the actual Peckinpah film, Junior Bonner, with Steve McQueen, which is a very underrated Peckinpah film from 1972. Uh, it's because it's not kind of a typical Peckinpah film. It is, uh, it's a great character study of a rodeo guy, and uh, Steve McQueen is fantastic in it. He's really good. This is some of his best acting, very, very uh, constrained. Really good audio commentary by uh, Paul Sidor and Garner Simmons and David Weddle, who've, uh, who are, who've written about Peckinpah. I've met David Weddle, sat next to mm. us at Alafka uh, dinner once, the, uh, the year that we gave the award to uh, Jerry Lewis. And uh, Nick Redman, who is mm. one of the principals at Twilight Time, moderates it. So that's a really good audio commentary. And uh, a lot of other fun stuff on here. Uh, a, a, a rodeo, a passion, a passion and poetry rodeo time uh, featurette, and then a passion poetry peck and pot anecdotes bit. Both of them together are, cast, are feature man. length. Hell of a cast. Robert Preston, Ida Lupino. Oh, it's great. Ben Johnson's in that movie. Joe Don Baker's in that movie. Yeah. I mean, in 72. That's yeah. A, that's the, 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 they, they weren't well. Well, Ida Lupino was kind of late, Ida Lupino, but everybody yeah. else was like, you know, in their stride. Uh, Portrait of Jenny uh, with Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton is one of these great movies from the time of Laura and a lot of movies that had kind of a ghosty, eerie, uh, otherworldly kind of vibe to them. William Dieterle directed this. This is really one of the best movies of this period, a Selznick-produced movie, and uh, highly, highly recommended from 1948. Really got to check it out. I Joseph Cotton is just so good. Uh, Portrait of Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E. Uh, we got another Woody Allen movie, Take the Money and Run, which I absolutely adore. Um, early Woody. Early fun, Woody. It's, uh, outrageously funny Woody. Bananas Woody. I, there is nothing funnier in any Woody Allen movie than the gag in this. And I, yes, I'm going to give it away. So here's a spoiler. Can it for like 30, 40 seconds if you don't want to hear this. <laughs> There's nothing funnier. First of all, the idea of Woody as a, as a convict is just hysterical. The, but the idea of a, where he... He carves a bar of soap into a gun, covers it with shoe polish, walks in and actually uses it to get himself outside where it's raining and the gun <laughs> foams in his hands and they take him back in. It's one of the funniest bits I have ever seen. That gun uh, foaming in his hand is such a funny bit of comedy. It's absolutely amazing. Because we don't always think about Woody Allen as a sort of visual comedian, but yeah. that, young Woody Allen was a very... Oh yeah, visual comedian. When yeah. we, he was a stand-up comedian, so he's a talking guy. Yeah. But but Woody running around doing all those wacky things and all those visuals mm -hmm. in, in movies like uh, everything you want to know about about sex. Yeah. Those Joel Schumacher and all of the production design. That's you know, visual comedy. It's great. So that's uh, no extras on this, but you know who needs them? Woody is an extra. Uh, then we've got another Gary Marshall movie, Flamingo Kid on Blu-ray, which is uh, welcome. I love the, uh, the Flamingo Kid. I think that's a really sharp film. 
Uh, made, one of the, made Matt Dillon's career. Made Matt Dillon's career. He is great in it, especially when he makes noises when he eats. Very funny bit. Uh, Richard Crenna, Hector Elizondo, obviously, in every Gary Marshall movie. I saw Hector yesterday in a very early episode of All in the Family. Yeah. He had so much hair. Uh-huh. He, he's in the elevator. You know the yeah, episode there the in the episode. elevator with the baby. Sure. The ladies having, his wife yeah. is having the baby. It yep. was fantastic. It's great stuff. Yeah. It's great. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's a uh, Flamingo Kid is really good. It has an audio commentary uh, with Pat Healy and Jim Healy as well. Uh, and then um, we've got a movie that I know Tim and I are both very fond of that got no love at the time, City of Industry. Mm-hmm. This is from 1997, John Irvin movie. Uh, the guy who did, you know, uh, Hamburger Hill and many other fine movies. Uh, which which Schwarzenegger film did he do? It was. Uh, uh, good question. I'm not I forget sure. which one it was. Oh, anyway, yeah. one of those one of those Schwarzenegger films from the time too. Uh, this is a really good, just solid crime noir, and it's got some great performances in it from Stephen Dorff and Timothy Hutton, but especially Harvey Keitel, who's Raw basically deal. Raw Deal. Raw Deal. That That's was the one. Was. That's the one yeah. he did. Yeah. Harvey Keitel is so good in this though. It's like an Edward Edgar G. Robinson kind yeah. of heavy. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. great. Uh, you know, this is sort of, uh, it, it's got, you know, interlocking characters and it, it's really interesting how it spins its story. It's a very smart script and, uh, I'm just, I'm really, I'm sad this film didn't do better at the time. This was one of the last of the, uh, the Orion films before everything went completely south with that yeah. brand. Yeah. And then we're going to end up, uh, end the show leading into our, our, uh, our interview, um, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to talk to Larry Cohen, mm-hmm. and Larry Cohen, of course, legendary writer, director, filmmaker. You know, he's there's a there's a there's a documentary that's making the rounds, which he and I are going to talk a little bit about on the interview, and that's all about his career, his crazy, wild, nutty career. And you know, Larry Cohen was was primarily at a certain point a white guy that made black exploitation films. Yep. And when the time came for that genre to sort of make a nostalgic comeback. Fred Williamson, who is going to produce a, a get-together again that brought everybody back together, Pam Greer and Jim Brown and, uh, and you know, Paul Winfield and Ron O'Neill and Richard Roundtree, they were all going to get together again. And who did he call? Who did Fred Williamson call to direct that movie? Larry Cohen. He called Larry Cohen. Uh, because Larry Cohen is out of his mind. And, and, even, and so. even that was 20 years ago. What's funny to me is these, this movie, Original Gangsters, Original Gangsters. Was, 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 you know, 20 years after the original black yeah. exploitation films. Yeah. And this movie was now 20 years Isn't ago. That crazy? Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. That's just time flies. Uh, but this is a very fun film. This is the movie that brought Pam Greer back. There would be no Jackie Brown if not for Original Gangsters. And it sort of put her back on the map and showed that she still had chops and she's a great actress. And everybody else is great in this, too. They're all terrific. It is just so much fun. If you love that genre like we do, uh, it's great to see all these people together again in this movie, Original Gangsters. And, uh, you know, Larry Cohen, such a fascinating guy, does a good job. He's still got it. He also wrote Phone Booth, by the way. Cellular Phone Booth. I mean, yeah. 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 So uh, without any further ado, here is the interview with Larry Cohen. It is my enormous uh, privilege, and uh, and I use that in every sense of the word, to be talking right now with Larry Cohen, a uh, a really legendary fixture in uh, in the independent film world, in the in the film world generally, 
who has been a huge influence on me and whose movies have just uh, been such a treasured part of my uh, my upbringing. Larry, I uh, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we don't have nearly the time. I, I could talk to you for hours and, and uh, make an enemy of you, I'm sure. Um, just all the questions that I have. You already call me a fixture. <laughs> I let me let me first of all we're we're specifically uh, talking uh, to you with respect to a documentary a long overdue documentary called King Cohen the Wild World of filmmaker Larry Cohen which is uh, this incredibly long overdue uh, look at your career um, do you when you look I mean I, I'm sure you're like most filmmakers in the sense that you feel like you're probably still just getting started and you don't really look at your career as being this this enormous body of work. Am I correct in that? No, no. I, I have an enormous body of work. <laughs> okay. I, I I saw the picture up in Montreal where it ran at the Montreal Festival and won the Best Documentary Prize, and I hadn't seen it before, so I, I didn't know I had done all those things. You you really were uh, an amazing kind of a you you came along at an amazing moment when uh, exploitation films and studio films and all these different sort of upstart genres were vying for attention at a moment right after the the studio system was kind of falling apart and it was a bit of a free for all uh, and you were you were one of the gunslingers in that wild west period and you did just about everything. Um, what what was it that drove you? What really when you, when you chose a film, when you wrote a film, when you wanted to direct a film, what was the what was the what really were you operating on? Was it instinct or was there something special that you were looking for? I just wanted to be able to, to be in control of my own movies. I had started out in television and written a lot of TV and uh, my own series several times, and then I got into movies and sold a lot of screenplays. But I was never happy with the outcome of the screenplays. I was happy with the money, but I wasn't happy with the pictures that they made. And so finally I decided the only way to uh, stop complaining about things and do something about it was to make my own movies. And uh, so I decided that's what I would do. But I only wanted to do it uh, with the condition that I had complete control of the movie, everything, writing, directing, producing, editing, choosing the composer, everything even making the titles myself. So uh, I, uh, you know, I, I went to the other extreme of uh, from just selling the script to being in charge of every element of the picture, which I enjoyed doing. I felt it was much easier for me to do it that way, and uh, I liked what, what the final result. You know, you, you started by making uh, three, as a director at least, you started by making three films that are sort of legendary in the so-called black exploitation genre, uh, Bone, Black Caesar, and uh, Hell Up in Harlem. And um, you were one of a handful of white directors who really, really made a mark in that genre, which, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a fine line to walk at that point in time. Uh, yeah, obviously, also, there was stuff like Shaft, which was a studio film. Um, talk a little bit but about Shaft was, Shaft was directed by a black director, right? But it was a studio film, you know. It was, it was, it was Superfly, a... yeah. They were, they were the big hits at the time. So, so talk about working in that genre and 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 you know where there were these very racially charged films and being a white director who is trusted by by a black cast and and uh, by other black artisans to sort of tell these stories. Was that ever ever an issue? I never thought about it, frankly. I mean. Uh... 
And I never had any problem with any of the members of the cast or anybody associated with the pictures. All the black people were happy to have the job and were happy to be making a movie. And uh, and I uh, I never thought of them as anything but uh, gangster movies, like uh, James Cagney's films or Edward G. Robinson's films or Bogart's films. This was just, uh, you know, uh, black actors playing the gangsters. And uh, the fact we shot in Harlem... Uh, that was the perfect place for it because that's where it took place. You know, it's interesting, too, because I remember very well when I last spoke to you at the original Gangsters Junket in 1996. Um, that was pretty much the, the same comment that everybody there, you know, gave me at the time. Uh, they all just sort of, they were they were so thrilled to be working with you again, and it was such a great reunion, and there was a sense of camaraderie. And um, it, it made me think, you know, this is there, this is a, this is really harkening to a different era. We think of that era as being one of of sort of racial and political division, but it seems like there was an awful lot of camaraderie on those movies and in that movement in particular, because I guess there wasn't a lot of studio interference. You were able to pretty much do what you wanted, all of you artistically. Is that fair? Oh yeah, that's the way it was in all my movies. I, I didn't want to be involved with any executives or any supervisory personnel. If I was going to make the picture, they just have to get out of the way. Just give me the money and go away and let me make the picture. And I would deliver it when it was finished. And that was it. Nobody saw dailies. Nobody made comments. Nobody gave me notes. I uh, I, I just went off and did my film, and nobody knew what I was doing till I was done with it. You know, some of your some of my favorite films of yours are the uh, are the the films that you know either straight up horror or kind of veer into the horror and the and the monster genre. It's Alive, uh, such a classic. And then one of my favorites, I was in high school at the time, Q, uh, the Winged Serpent, which it was I think prefigures so much of what we do today with all of the CGI and Jurassic Park and dragon movies and you were you were on the cutting edge you made you made one before anybody else even dreamed of it before technology really even said that we could think in those ways um well, that was one of the last of the stop motion photography yeah. films that uh, you know that had been popular for years but was kind of uh, uh, antiquated because uh, along came CGI and uh, you didn't need stop motion anymore but uh, but I enjoyed doing it with the guys, even though it was very slow going. It would take them, you know, a week to do uh, 30 seconds worth of effects and uh, throw me crazy after a while waiting around because I could make a whole picture uh, quicker than they could do the effects uh, in 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 three weeks. So uh, it was uh, it was it was a long wait, but we finally got what was worthwhile and put it in the picture. Uh, but I I don't I didn't envy that because that was one of the few areas that I couldn't do myself. I had to farm it out to people who were experts, and uh, they just were the kind of people who could sit in a room and fool around with these models uh, an inch at a time and go on and just deliver, uh, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe a minute at a time to you, and you'd have to drive all the way out to Burbank to see it. And, and, and in those days, they couldn't even send it to you over the Internet. So it was, uh, it was, it was the slowest portion of the picture for me. I wanted to get on with it. You know, I, I think you also deserve so much credit for the things that you d haven't directed, but that you wrote and conceived. And, you know, some of your work as a screenwriter is is really, really, really extraordinary and does not, in my opinion, get enough credit. I'm thinking particularly of something like the screenplay for I, the Jury, uh, adapted from the Mickey Spillane, and Phone Booth in particular, which has such a fascinating history. Um, could you talk for just a moment specifically about Phone Booth 
And I mean, that film was what twenty five, thirty years in the in the making through various stages the, from when it was originally going to be a thing for Hitchcock. Could you talk just a moment about that because it's such an amazing story? Well, it was only an idea for years. It was it was nothing more than that. And uh, Hitch always wanted to do the thing in the phone booth because it was right up his alley. But we couldn't figure out how to do it. Why the guy couldn't leave the phone booth? And then years later, it dawned on me that I already knew the answer. I had a sniper up on top of a building in uh, New York, and God told me to. If I just took the sniper and introduced him to the phone booth, uh, then we'd have a reason why the guy would be trapped in the phone booth. And once I had that worked out, it only took me uh, uh, actually over a weekend to write the whole script. I was up in, uh, in, in, in Mexico on a vacation, and... Instead of going down to the beach where you couldn't go swimming anyway if you didn't want to drown, uh, I stayed in the hotel room and wrote the script. So that's uh, that was a that didn't take long at all to do. It all came pouring out when time came to do it. Once I had figured out the the, the answer to the puzzle. Well, I, it's a, I, I think it's a terrific film and. Uh... It's you know movie. There are often movies that sort of seem to be inventing a gimmick for the sake of a gimmick. But what's beautiful about a phone booth is that it it really does it earns all of its uh, all of its claustrophobic uh, credentials. It, it's uh, you know especially now in the cell phone era where phone booths are disappearing. I think it's uh, it's it's still just a terrific film. And uh, Joel Schumacher did a great job directing, and Colin Farrell is perfect. And I would have uh, done better. But <laughs> it would have been better. Uh, I would have shot it in New York City on Eighth Avenue and Forty Fourth Street, and surrounded by traffic and police cars and ambulances and fire trucks and buses and taxis and and thousands of people. I would have stolen most of it and uh, and, and created the feeling of tremendous claustrophobia of the guy trapped in the middle of the phone booth. Uh, among thousands of people passing by. They didn't have that thousands of people passing by kind of feeling in the movie because uh, he, they had to recreate New York City and downtown L.A. And uh, so they missed out on that. And uh, and then I would have uh, segued from day to night so that he would have been in the full booth and the police arrive. And then we could have closed down the streets in New York at night and shot that with searchlights and all kinds of... Uh, can we Can we push for a remake? Because that yeah. sounds great. Well, you know, everything is remade eventually, so we're waiting around for it. <laughs> I went to I went to 20th Century Fox when we were making the picture, and I said, look, you're going to shoot this picture in a couple of weeks. It's going to be very low budget for you guys. And you're sending the script out to all these stars, you know. And when, one time, Mel Gibson was interested in doing it and directing it, and then we uh, Will Smith and then Jim Carrey and... Uh, Everybody else wanted to be in it. Uh, Dustin Hoffman wanted to do the voice on the phone. Uh, uh, Robin Williams wanted to do the voice on the phone. I said, you know, as long as the picture's so low budget and everybody wants to be in it, why don't we make it three times? You know, all the supporting actors will be the same, but the star will be different. So you just shoot the scene, and then another actor will come in and do the scene, and then the other star would come in and do the scene. You'll have three versions of the picture with three stars, and you'll put them all out in the distribution the same day. Uh, and uh, uh, audiences love nothing more than a contest. So they're all going to want to go see all three versions to see all three stars playing this phone booth scene. And uh, uh, it was a fabulous idea because it had never been done before and never has been done since. No. 
but uh, they wouldn't go for it because they'd never heard of it before, and studio executives won't do anything that they haven't seen before. Yeah. So there's no there's no uh, effort to be original, because if you're original, you have a chance of failure and responsibility. If you never take a chance, you can't fail. So that's what's wrong with the industry. Is everybody wants to do remakes, sequels, comic books? Uh, you know, uh, it just there's no originality. If you go to them with a project, first thing they want to know is what's this like. And I say it's not like anything. If it was like something, I wouldn't have written it. And they look at you with a blank stare. So what can you say? Well, that's that's sadly true. And that was that's where I was going to kind of take this next, which is that your your career really thrived at a time when you could do those things. And it seems that it, despite the fact that we've got we have more tools available for independent filmmakers than ever today, and they're more affordable than ever, that we we just don't get the same level of risk and originality that we got back in in the heyday of the '70s when you were really you know pumping them out. Um, do you see? Well, when I made when I made my movies, there was a chance of theatrical distribution. Uh, at the beginning, there was no place else to go but theatrical, and later on, maybe television. But there was there was no cable and there was no uh, video stores, so you had to play the picture in the theaters, and that's what I made them for—to be seen by audiences in theaters, and they could afford to advertise them in those days. But it got to be so expensive to release a movie. If you didn't spend twenty, thirty million dollars on advertising, you didn't get any audiences. So it was like a poker game where they priced it so high you couldn't afford to sit down at the table and play anymore. Uh, and once they wouldn't play the movies in the theaters, uh, uh, the, the 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 magic went out of it for me. I I wasn't interested really in making pictures for home video. So, is there a chance that uh, that you'll we'll, we'll see you again, uh, see your name up on the on the big screen? Anything that that you might be able to to do in this current environment that uh, that we can well, look I got forward a to? Package, I got a package of thrillers uh, uh, with J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams' company, uh, Bad Robot, and it looks very close to getting it going. So, right. if we do, we'll have uh, ten uh, thrillers uh, in the package. And then I got seven more for the following season already written. I, I've got 17 scripts written for this series. Oh, that's so let's great. see what happens. I mean, it's a, it's a different way of, of, of being in show business, but it's a guarantee that the things will play and be seen, and you don't have to worry about going out and advertising and try to get theaters to play the movie because uh, these movies will all be seen on cable, probably uh, on Cinemax or uh, Home video, uh, you know, and also on Netflix and uh, you know uh, Showtime. All those, all those areas are possible for this particular kind of series. So, I, I know JJ, who has the hottest show on cable right now, which is, uh, uh, as you know, uh, a very, very popular program, yeah. Westworld. Yeah. So uh, I think we'll have no trouble getting this on the air. Well, uh, Larry, I wish you all the best on behalf of uh, my colleagues and uh, all of our <laughs> listeners. Um, you've you've made so you've given us all so much happiness, and uh, you know we we deeply appreciate everything that you've done in your in incredibly storied career. Um, we wish you all the best, and we will look forward to more great work uh, in the future. And if people want to see my films right now, they're available on on cable on the internet uh, on I think Netflix or. You can just go yeah. in there, and you can say my name. In many cases, if you have the audio ability, you can say Larry Cohen. My picture comes up, and then comes up a list of 14 of my movies. They're all available. You can rent them. 
very reasonably priced. I can see every picture, almost every picture that I've made, and I particularly uh, recommend the private files of J. Edgar Hoover, particularly with all the politics that's going on now and the uh, FBI and the president and all that stuff. You'll see all kinds of revelations uh, about uh, what went on in politics in the United States over the years and the FBI's participation in the destruction of the Nixon administration. So I, uh, it's right there for them, and all they got to do is punch in my name. And, you know, we, we uh, talked about Coronet Blue some weeks ago on the podcast as well, which is uh, one of your terrific uh, television efforts, and I think that's an ad on DVD, and that just holds up beautifully, too. Well, so. you know, Coronet Blue starts off with a guy being found floating in the in the river, and he's been shot, and he has amnesia. If this doesn't sound like the born identity to you, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm sure that Robert Ludlum based the Born Identity on Carnet Blue. I I would be I would be I think you're probably spot on. Yeah. Um, and you know we're you're also I I should tell you you are also going to come up in conversation at an event uh, that's being held on Saturday. It'll be a past event by the time this airs on the podcast. But on Saturday, my colleague Tim Cogshill and I are uh, going to be talking uh, at the Ace Theater in downtown L.A. after screening of Jackie Brown. Which I think is is you know Tarantino pays homage to you several times in that film, and well, he, uh, he told me that he hired Pam Greer after seeing yep. her in Original Gangsters. Yep. And he went opening day to Original Gangsters at a black theater in Los Angeles. I said, well, why'd you go all the way over there? He said, I wanted to see it with the audience, yep. which was intended for. And then right after that, he cast her in the lead, and uh, so. Uh, and she got an Oscar nomination as a result. Uh, yeah, and I wish it had done more for her career because she was a truly good actress and she should have got more leading roles in A-class movies. Uh, but it, it didn't happen for her like it happened for uh, some other actors who have been in Tarantino's movies. But but uh, she, she did get a lot of television work and cable work, but she deserved to be a movie star. Yeah, and, well... Uh, and, uh, well, maybe... There's always tomorrow, right? Yep, absolutely. There's, there's never, there's no, never any uh, chances that the only chances uh, are the ones that you don't take advantage, take advantage of. So chances well, always there. Thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you, Larry. Thanks. We, uh, we wish you all the best. We will look forward to all, uh, all the work that you have yet to come out. And look forward to seeing the documentary. I think you'll get yes. a big kick out of it. Yes, we will absolutely. The documentary is King Cohen, and right. uh, I'm sure that'll, that's uh, supposed. To, I guess we should look forward to that coming out uh, later this year, early next year. It just won the uh, festival up in uh, up in Canada, and now they're uh, playing it in London. Uh, the, the director's just leaving today for London for a screening, and then it's going to play in Spain, and it's playing in Portugal, and it's playing in right. Paris. It's it's and the, we're, I'm going down to see it in Texas at Austin, Texas, at a big festival down there. So. I'll be doing that next month. Great. Well, stay busy, my friend. We will speak with you soon. I sure hope that I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. We will. All right. Thank you, Larry. Bye-bye. All right. That is it. Another week done. We will be back next week with a lot of uh, new stuff and hopefully uh, not too many more accusers of James Toback and Harvey Weinstein. The numbers just keep going up and up. I wouldn't count on it. I've been really talking about that for a while.